0: Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, this morning we begin a new series, and this new series is found in the book of James in our Newer Testaments. So I'd love for you now to find your way to this very practical book that many have referred to as the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. And here in this first chapter, verse 1 down to verse 11, you and I are going to be introduced to the way in which God would have us handle the trials of life that come our way. And we face wide-ranging trials, don't we? And they can be trials in our families, and they can be trials in our health. They can be trials in our finances. They can be external, they can be internal, but there is this tremendous affliction and pressure from without that gets placed upon our very souls, our very well-being. And what we need to do is to be able to drink deeply from this well of wisdom that's found here. And in verse 1, down to verse 11, which we introduced last week, where James himself had been a very strong proponent of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. He now builds off of that and tells you and me, if we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, then how do we go about living our lives? So in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of James, you and I are informed Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises in its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits so we're looking this morning at the various trials of life, trying to determine what matters the most, to distinguish between what's temporal and what's eternal. We need wisdom, don't we? And so if you come here this morning and your heart in one way, shape, or form is heavy because of something that perhaps those around you don't know the totality of, well, here's an opportunity by God's grace through God's word to apply truth to life. Let's look for our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, what we want to do is to present everything internally and combine it with everything externally that engages our minds, our hearts, our souls, our entire being, and submit that to you. We come into this world as fallen people, and we enter into this world, a fallen world, But we also realize that there is a sinless one who entered into this world to die in our place for our sins. One who is saturated with wisdom. One who would die in such a way that what was accomplished on that cross would be complete, sufficient, and meant for all things eternal. But our challenge is is that we deal with the temporal issues as well as the eternal issues of life. And we've got to find a way to take the eternal perspective and to press it into the temporal trials we, we encounter. And if that's the challenge this morning for anybody here, I pray that these words found in your word minister to those hearts. So Father, in these minutes together, we're praying once again that you warm these hearts. And that you engage these minds. And that you shape these wills. We've come here to see Jesus. And him only. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Brian Stenberg was a nationally acclaimed pole vaulter. I set on the Olympics. It seemed as though the sky was the limit, no pun intended. He had set a world record for the pole vault, but then one month after that success, he had an accident and was paralyzed from the neck down. While Brian was in the hospital, his uncle came to see him and said, Brian, I wish I could take your place for a week and just give you some rest. Brian responded, you couldn't do it. I know, because I couldn't either, if I didn't have to. In an interview with a nationwide magazine, Brian was asked about his faith in Jesus Christ and how it related to this incredible accident that had taken place. Brian said, I want you to know that my life is being used fully for the glory of God. I do not want my faith in God to be just a result of my desire to get well. Having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things in this condition. Being healed is one of them peace, of mind, of healing does not come as the other, but by God's grace, either one is sufficient. What an incredible witness this man provides for us when we begin to evaluate carefully the trials of life that come our way wisdom from the lips of one who's experienced incredible trials in his own personal experience when James writes he writes in verse 1 as a servant of God he does not refer to himself as the brother of Jesus the half brother he was it's fascinating because he does not want to put himself on equal footing with Jesus he wants to place himself under the authority of Jesus And what we've got to bear in mind when we begin to look very carefully at the trials of life is that to fully understand and comprehend the significance of the issues that people face, we've got to ask ourselves, am I simply trying to place myself above the trials of life? Or am I placing myself under the authority of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ himself endured trials and then served as my substitute, dying on that cross for my sins. You'll notice that in verse 1, it refers to the fact that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. By writing to the 12 tribes, he's referring, obviously, then, to Christian Jews. And, and there are over 50 allusions in this book of five chapters to the Old Testament. But what interests you and interests me with regard to this, that as Christian Jews, these were individuals that would face tremendous tensions relationally. Because as Christians, they would be increasingly facing the growing turbulence in the Roman Empire of persecution towards believers. But at the same time, as Jews, they would be ostracized in the Jewish community because they, as Jews, had put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And so they were between a rock and a hard place, you see. if you ever been there? where you look at the trials of life and you turn to the right and you turn to the left and you want to go forward or maybe you go backward, no matter which way you turn, you feel as though you're hemmed in. Well, these are some of the challenges that the people that James is writing to are experiencing. But what is fascinating to you and fascinating to me is that he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion and what we find when we look at that word very carefully is that it was a Greek word. And it was a Greek word that referred to a f- farmer who was out in the fields in the midst of the spring ha- time where he was doing his planting. And as he was planting, he was dispersing. He was dispersing his seed over the soil. These were not gathered people that could find a holy huddle of comfort. These were scattered people that were going to have to find the re- rugged realities of life and be able to address them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, we're gathered on a Sunday morning, but we're scattered over the course of the week, and sometimes we find ourselves facing the whole challenges of living for Jesus in the midst of our trials in a sense of aloneness, don't we? But remember, when God positions you in the midst of those scattered times, he is seeding soil. He is dispersing his believers for the purpose of being able to see the soil in the hearts of those that don't yet know Jesus Christ as the Lord and as their Savior. And he'll use your trials to reach others through your testimony. Now I say that because we're squeezing elements out of verse 1, aren't we, to prepare the way for three significant challenges that God, through the penmanship of James, is going to deliver to us so that you and I are better equipped to be able to manage the trials of life that come our way. So this is meant personally for you and for me, but it's also meant, generally speaking, so that we can take the principles that are here and relate them to the people that maybe are struggling at this time with the big whys of life. And hopefully we can provide some perspectives in their time of need. Because the first challenge that I want to draw out for you flows naturally out of verse 2. Down to verse 4. The number one, when experiencing various trials, we should count it all joy. Let me say it again. When experiencing various trials, and it's plural, we should count it all, not some, all joy. Now, let's begin to break down this idea and think it through very carefully, if you would with me, please. Because the word count was used in two different senses in the time period. You see, for those that were financial analysts in that day, what they had to do was to be able to evaluate very carefully the currency that was in their hands. What you and I have to do when we look at very carefully at the trials that are coming our way is to evaluate the currency of grace that God has provided, that is being distributed hand-to-hand, person-to-person, heart-to-heart. And ask whether or not the currency of grace is being managed wisely by me in the midst of the trials that I am facing. It was an evaluative term, a financial analyst in dealing with currency, but as a believer, you and I are dealing with the currency of grace in the midst of our challenging times. But there was also a second usage of that word. And you lift it now out of the financial realm and into the athletic realm because it also had to do with someone who was running ahead of the pack. It described a runner, and this runner, you see, was able to evaluate about how much energy was left and necessary to be able to make it to the finish line ahead of the rest of the people, evaluating internally what's inside of him, but also measuring in terms of his own pace, what's necessary to reach that line ahead of the others while maintaining a sense and evaluating a sense of what stands behind him. Now what you and I have to do in the trials of life is to be able to determine as we evaluate not only the currency of grace, but also measure very carefully what is it going to take to be able to finish in such a way that pleases God. We evaluate internally, but we also evaluate externally as to what's before us and what stands behind us when we measure, you see, the trials of life that come our way. Now, when you and I take the imagery of the financial analyst who does his own evaluation. And combine it with with the imagery of the athlete who has got to be able to monitor very carefully, internally and externally, what does it take to be able to pace himself, herself well, to be able to finish in a way that brings glory to God. You have begun to embrace, you see, that one word that stands in front of you, count. And notice very carefully with me that it says count it all joy, not some. In other words, you have an opportunity now to be able to draw from within, draw upon the person from within, not just simply lean upon the circumstances from without. Because in the midst of trials, what you and I find is that there's a tension between the pressures from without and the person from within. If Jesus Christ resides within your heart, and he is your Savior and your Lord, And you've embraced the principle, greater is he that is in me than than that which is in the world. Then the person from within more than counters the pressure from without. But you see, if I do not have Jesus Christ residing within my heart, the Holy Spirit operative, then the pressures from without will supersede anything in terms of my own capacity, withstand them in terms of my own sense of what's within. So I've got to get it settled within my own heart. Who is Lord? Count it all joy, you see, my brothers. Now, when James says this, he could have easily begun his chapter by saying, uh, James, a brother, you see, of Jesus Christ. Instead, he describes himself as servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and refers to himself as a brother only in relationship to other people because he didn't want to diminish the sinless glory of Jesus Christ. So he connects himself with brothers, with the family of faith in Jesus Christ alone. Which tells me then, and informs you and me likewise, that we, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, have not been made exempt from the trials of life. They will find us. In fact, due to our sinful nature, we have a way of finding them, too. But because we're talking about Christians, when he says, my brothers, we've got to understand this basic idea. What is more important than an explanation from God about our trials is a relationship with God during our trials. Let me say that again. What is more important than an explanation from God about our trials is a relationship with God during our trials. For you see, the believer has settled the biggest question that trials pose, and it is not the why question. It is the who question. Who do I turn to when answers escape me? And can I trust that one with all the answers, even though he may not necessarily disclose all the answers? But you see, the world operates with using the word why. The why question is the starting point, and then tries to figure out the issues of the hour. But the believers established the who, who knows the why. And has revealed himself through the second member of the Trinity who went to the cross, faced the trials of life legally as well as physically, and then died as my substitute for my sins, you see. And so believers are not exempt from the trials of life. And so when you look very carefully at that phrase, counted all joy, and you use both the financial and the athletic imagery there, and you say it's all, not some, it pertains to believers, my brothers, you are then able to deduce from this that what's more important than an explanation from God regarding your trials is a relationship with God during your trials. Are you part of the family of faith? Count it all joy, you see. My brothers, all joy. Not some joy. C.S. Lewis wisely wrote to these words, Joy is never in our power, and pleasure is. In his book, Surprised by Joy, he went on to say, I doubt whether anyone who has tasted joy would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasure in the world. And so we have a pleasure-seeking society that's in desperate need of being able to figure out the tension between pleasure and pain. But we go to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see how God has, in essence, taken the pain of Jesus Christ and used it in such a way to produce something far greater than mere pleasure. Now the issue is not, do I find pleasure in this world, but am I pleasing God in this world? And pleasing God versus worldly pleasures becomes the new issue of the hour for the believer in the midst of the trials we face. And you're squeezing all this out of this opening phrase in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. What I want to do with you, when we look very carefully now, verses 2 through 4, is to be able to extract five aspects of trials. And the first one has just been developed. The trials need to be evaluated, counted, the imagery of the financial analyst, the imagery of the athlete. But second of all, trials are inevitable. Notice that it reads, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. It does not say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials. What well, that tells you and tells me then that this is part of the life curriculum that God has brought into our own personal experiences. Now, the challenge for you and the challenge for me is to deal with those winds because so often the winds of life come at seemingly inopportune times. They seem to be timed in such a way that, I, very frankly, I would have rescheduled it for a later date. Wouldn't you do the same? But you see, I'm not the scheduler, I can't schedule the trials of life. And while they might seem to be ill-timed in my estimation, the one who is all eternal, who sent his Son in the fullness of what time, is the one who perfectly times what is necessary to enhance my own faith in the one who came to die for my sins. It's a when. Trials need to be evaluated. And if we are not evaluated, evaluating them wisely, then we'll end up viewing them unwisely. And the pressures from without will more than overcome us because we have not relied upon the person from within. Trials are inevitable. It's a when. I can't substitute an if. Now, the challenge is, is, that you and I read this. It says, when you meet trials, that means I meet them. I don't manufacture them. Our sinful nature has this tendency sometimes to put us in a disciplinary state of trials. It's because we have manufactured trials unnecessarily, rather than finding ourselves meeting trials on the course of life strategically. So now, as you evaluate, that's the key to start with. You and I are called to evaluate the trials of life. Count it all, join my brothers. You and I are supposed to accept the inevitability of the trials of life when you meet trials, not when you manufacture trials. Then you're ready still for this third aspect of trials. They are of various kinds trials are varied. They need to be evaluated, number one. They need to be understood as inevitable, number two. They need to be understood as varied, number three. And you say varied in what way? They will vary in terms of the person. What might be a major trial to you may not necessarily carry the same freight as a trial for someone else. Yet what is a major trial for someone else might not necessarily feel like a major trial to you. Because we are all created in the image of God, but there are variations. We have our own DNA. There are distinctives about who we are, our own family, origins, and so on. They vary among people. Furthermore, they vary in duration. Sometimes they're short. Sometimes they're long. Sometimes you're called to be a sprinter, but other times you're called to be a marathoner, and you say, but Gary, it seems to me the sprinters don't train like marathoners, and the marathoners don't seem to train like sprinters. Yet there's the challenge in the course of life, you see, because as the spiritual athlete, you're going to have to find the capacity to be able to do both by the workings of the Holy Spirit from within you. So they vary among people. They vary in terms of duration, but they also vary thoroughly in terms of intensity. There are varying degrees of trials that come our way. And so you look at that and you begin to ponder the significance of that word varied. Because it comes from a word to describe the variegated. Colors Utilized by a weaver in that time period, an artisan if you 've ever gone to williamsburg you 've got a tremendous opportunity if you have friends or family members with you to stop at one of the shops where a weavers doing the work and begin to look carefully at the various colors that are being brought together woven together to create. A picture of beauty, though it may not appear that way initially. And what God is doing through this variety, through this variegated colored approach is create something that you nor I would be able to fully imagine. Corey Ten Boom understood that. You might remember that she was incarcerated during World War II Nazi concentration camp. She loved Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And upon her release, in the midst of her speaking to us, she would very strategically, at a certain point in her presentation, hold up before other people a visual. And she would hold up this visual of the work of the weaver, where they could look at the various threads and the various colors and the formation of something that had been in the mind of the weaver. She would then... Utilizing this poem, state, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forgets he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and shuttles cease to fly. Will God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why? And the dark threads are as needful in the skillful weaver's hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. And there was an authenticity in her words. Because due to the pressures from without, she had to trust very clearly the one, the person from within. She was able to address the why issues with the who person, the one who had died for her sins, had experienced the trials of life legally, physically, and every other sense of the word. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And had the capacity to be able to draw upon Psalm 22 verse 1 in the midst of his own severe trial and still relying upon the scriptures that had prophetically described this scene centuries prior. Do you do that in the midst of your own trials? Can you take the scriptures and allow them to be part of the weaving process? Because they need to be evaluated. Trials are inevitable. It's a when, it's not an if. You see it there. Trials are varied. Varied among people. Varied in length. Varied in intensity. But fourthly, trials involve testings. We finally got out of verse 2 and we're now in verse 3. For you know, there's a degree of intimate certainty in that word. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So now you and I embrace what we have sometimes said, faith which can't be tested, can't be what? Trusted. So now we look at the various ways in which faith was tested throughout the course of the centuries described within the Scriptures. For just as Jesus drew upon the Scriptures in the midst of his own severe trials, now you and I canvass the landscape of the trials and begin to ask in light of the who, how do we understand the whys? And so we are able to say, for example, from Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 11, that one of the reasons for trials is highly educational. That God uses the trials, you see, as a father educates the son, disciplines his son, so that they are better equipped to be able to internalize internal discipline and no longer rely upon parental discipline. Because they will reach a certain age when the parental will no longer be available to the same degree as when they were under the same roof. Is there a shifting from the parental disciplines to the internal disciplines of life to be able to say this is an educational usage of trials? In the Old Testament, there was also substitutionary util- utilization of trials, such as in Isaiah 53 predicting, of course, when Jesus Christ is our substitute, dying on that cross would experience the ultimate trial in our place. Thirdly, there's an empathetic form of trial, such as in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we are, we are experiencing the trials, the difficulties, the sufferings of life, so that we are able to comfort others in the process. Sometimes you have an opportunity to be able to say something to someone else nobody else will be able to speak of because there's an authenticity tied to that particular trial that meets the need for testimony within that particular soul that nobody else can seem to be able to provide. Sometimes, fourthly, there's a disciplinary usage of trials, another reason for them, such as Israel in the wilderness. Sometimes we feel like we are in the wilderness of life. Fifthly, sometimes there is meant simply to bring glory to God, such as Joseph did when he could easily ask the question, why me, when he was, when he was wrongly accused and placed in imprisonment in an Egyptian setting. Yet God was with him, and it's an interesting phrase, the Lord was with him as described in Genesis. And so he reached a point where he was second in leadership within the land of Egypt. And his own brothers who had sold him into slavery. He came to him, and he was able to give all glory to God. We're able then to distinguish between the means and the ends. He was able to say that all this was meant for the good. Which leads to still another reason for trials. They are testimonials, such as in the case of Job. Look very carefully at that phrase there when you meet trials of various kinds and apply that to chapter 1 of the book of Job where he experienced trials of the loss of loved ones, experienced the loss of finance, experienced the loss of relationship, loss of health. Do you see how James 1 verse 2 applies to that? Sometimes they're relational, such as in the case of Hosea who experience the brokenness of a marriage covenant. Sometimes they're apocalyptic, as described in the book of Revelation. I've just given you eight different reasons for trials. All of this, you see, under the umbrella of verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith, you see, produces steadfastness. Because God has not promise to make us comfortable in this world. He is determined to make us conformable to his will. Not comfortable in this world but conformable to his will. Now you look at that and you're able to say, okay, trials need to be evaluated. Trials are inevitable. Trials are varied. Trials Trials involve testing. And some of us have family members right now that in the month of May in the formal classroom setting are getting tested. The purpose of the test to reveal. And what God does for you, what God does for me in the testings of life is to reveal what's within. But even more significantly, who is within? Does this reveal Jesus to others in the midst of the trials, the testings that you and I experience in life? But notice the trials are also purposeful. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I was collecting some thoughts with regard to ways in which even in the secular realm we've got illustrations of steadfastness, determination in the private spheres of life because if we are developing the discipline of steadfastness in the private sphere, we're better prepared than to handle the trials in the public sphere. Back in his day when he was in top form, Michael Jordan was known when all of his other teammates had left the basketball court of spending an extra hour and a half a day In addition, simply to perfect his skills. When he was already the best of the best on a team at that time, Chicago Bulls, which were the best of the best. Or flip it over to the musical realm. We're in the classical realm. Arthur Rubinstein, he said, If I mispractice one day, I know it. If I mispractice two days my wife knows it. And if I mispractice three days, the world knows it. And somewhere along the way, if we are not cultivating and developing in our private sphere a sense of steadfastness, ultimately it begins to get disclosed in the public sphere of life, where my faithfulness and steadfastness to the word of Jesus Christ is no longer being applied to the same extent as it once was. And the concentric circles of my relationship start picking up on it. The immediate circle around me, but it begins to work its way out, you see. So we have now drawn out from verse 2 through 4, five aspects of trials. They need to be evaluated. Trials are inevitable. Trials are variegated, they're varied. Trials involve involve testing. Trials are purposeful. And we allow the athletic, we allow the musical, we allow the various spheres in the world to remind us of the spiritual dynamics of steadfastness so that we're better equipped internally to address the trials and the challenges of life externally. Now, once we have begun to work all of these principles through, from verse 2 through 4, and canvassed the various ways in which trials have been used by God's glory in the Scriptures. We're ready now for this second challenge in 5 through 8. Number two, when, when lacking needed wisdom, we should ask God in faith. Now I want you to connect the lack of verse 4 with verse 5. Verse 4 says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or complete, lacking in nothing. Circle that word, lacking. And connect it now in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. So now let's say that there's something that seems to be lacking at this point. And maybe it's a sense of understanding. In the medical realm, you want to be able, in your limited time with your physician, to be able to pose strategic questions. What can I ask within the time that I have? And you need wisdom. I need wisdom. So part of the process of cultivating wisdom is to be able to develop critical questions such as Jesus Christ would utilize time and time again in his earthly ministry in the various trials that he faced, and so should you and so should I. If any of you lacks wisdom, then the question is, of whom do I ask? In other words, first things first let him ask God that's where you begin because what the world does it starts with the why question but the believer starts with the who question later in the book of James we're going to find that in verse 13 James is going to write with regard to the two sources Of wisdom. In verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good counsel, good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have any bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, those are symptoms. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In other words, what God is saying through James is that there is a wisdom from above and there is a wisdom from below. And that which comes from below starts with the why questions of life. And you see it debated constantly on night after night on various newscasts as people argue point-counterpoint regarding ISIS or Iran or Baltimore. And this week, when we gather together for prayer on Thursday night, we need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our cabinet members. We need to pray for the Supreme Court. Because of all the cases, among other things, we are dealing here with the whole aspect of what constitutes a marriage. Now, if you and I believe that moral law shapes national law, then the who determines the Why? And we need to pray that God will work in the hearts of the nine justices. Because this is not merely the whole question of the inclusiveness of marriage. This has to do with the redefinition of marriage. But I would argue even more so this has to do with the reinstitution of marriage. Because the who determines the why. Why? And it is God who is the institutionalizer who created the institution of marriage. And so to redefine marriage is, in essence, to allow people to become the source of reinstituting marriage. This is some of the stuff we will pray about because our justices need wisdom. And in the Older Testament, in the book of Proverbs, the word wisdom, chokmah, in the Hebrew, means masterful understanding, skill, and expertise. Masterful understanding, skill, and expertise. The capacity to be able to apply truth to life in a timely way. And you and I, in our own personal experiences, need to be able to apply truth to life in a timely way, you see. And when we do that, we are able to draw principles from when Solomon himself sought God at the beginnings of his own leadership of the Israelite nation. And what did he seek first? He sought out God, the who, and then asked for the what? Wisdom. Former president of the United States, President McKinley, who was born again, later assassinated, when he took the oath of office as president of the U.S., he placed his lips on these words from First Kings chapter 3, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people that is so great. He knew where to go to be able to seek the wisdom he would need. When facing trials of life, we need to know where to go and to whom we go to be able to address the issues we face and what we need. Wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I used to live near the ocean, and the old salts would be out there bringing in their lobster traps at the end of the day and so on. Sometimes we'd carry on a conversation on my day off. And I'd always be struck with the relationship of wind to wave out on the Atlantic Because sometimes the waves would be coming in, but there was no wind, and I'd be asking myself the question, now what produced that wave? Because I'd be thinking about James. And as we would talk relationally and also discuss other matters, among other reasons, where there were winds prior, and when the winds cease, the waves continue. Sometimes in your own personal experience, it might be in the workplace or elsewhere, You're getting hit, bombarded by waves, but you see no wind, feel no wind. You're wondering, where's this coming from? Why is this being produced? It's because of something prior. And the past has now converged with the present. Other times, it's because out on the Atlantic, there are winds that are way off in the distance that cannot be felt on the shoreline but yet they're producing waves that are visible. So if you take the issue of timing and combine it with the issue of distance, sometimes in your own personal life, too, you might have a a serious issue physically, and lo and behold, it's two, three generations prior, but your own genetic makeup is such that it's now no longer recessive but dominant, and you're addressing issues that somebody else in prior generations faced because of the fact that it's there. Now, you tie all this together, you see. You see the wisdom that's being produced here in his writings. In verse 7, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In verse 8, He is a double-minded man. And the word double-minded means literally double sukas." We get the word psychology from it. In other words, there's a divided soul. Psychology is basically the study of the soul. Why psychologists have so many challenges in being able to interpret the personality disorders of this world is because if, if they are using secular means to try to determine a spiritual cause, they're going to be dealing with the whys but not addressing the who. But now here we have a situation on our hands here where such an individual is double soul, divided soul. He has two masters within, unstable, therefore, in all his ways, very conflicted. And sometimes that shows itself in relationships where the internal begins to reshape the externals. We're told that during the Civil War, there was a guy who lived near the dividing line between the North and the South. And he had friends and relatives that lived on both sides during the Civil War that added to his own sense of conflictedness. And so not wanting to anger either side, he hit on this brilliant plan, you see, that before going out in public the next time, he was going to don a pair of Union pants and a Confederate coat, walk confidently out in the public, and he, both sides, shot him. Conflicted. Double-sided. And if you are trying to live your life as though you're trying to please opposites, you are not addressing the ultimate who question not those around you, but the one above you. Once you and I have been able to embrace this challenge that's come our way, then the third challenge that I'm just going to touch briefly is this, that when examining personal resources, we should recognize what is temporal. And so he looks now at these people that are wrestling with, do I have the resources to be able to deal with the trials of life? And some people face financial challenges in the midst of medical trials and in the midst of job loss and on and on it goes. Well, let the lowly person, the lowly brother, notice the word brother, boast in his exaltation. Why does he say that? Because that's not the natural tendency of the one who lacks monetary resource. The rich in his humiliation. Why? because that is the natu- not the natural tendency of the one who has abundant monetary resource. In other words, he's saying now, hold in check your natural tendencies and rely upon the who rather than try to figure out the why's, the what's, and the why's before you move forward. Get the who firmly established, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits but there was a rich man who provided a tomb for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He didn't spend his resources. He invested his resources in the eternal because now that rich man Joseph of Arimathea is tied to the death and resurrection story of Jesus Christ, who endured the ultimate trial of life. And three days later, we find that he's raised from the dead, and he addresses the temporal, for the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, beauty perishes, so also will a rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Yet the eternal breaks in to Joseph, is soul, and three days later, finds that his trust has been validated. The resurrected Savior validates your trust in the midst of your trials. And that's why O'Brien Sternberg is able to be able to say very clearly to a news reporter, having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed, yes, is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing does not come as the other, by God's grace, either one is sufficient, because my Savior lives. Let's stand together. So, Fathers, now we enter into this new journey together. As we begin to make our way through the book of James, we want to be able to glean the masterful understanding that's necessary, chokmah, skill, expertise, of relating truth to life in timely ways to make a difference not only personally but relationally so that our testimony can impact others for Jesus. So if there's anybody that's going through such incredible times in their private sphere that others around them may not know the degree of or the duration of, may these words now minister to that heart and provide the perspective needed as we rely upon the one who is raised from the dead. And we'll give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.